low, though. Just thought I'd let you know. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Isaiah 64. Isaiah chapter 64. Today is our last day of fasting and prayer. We um, begin each year with 21 days of fasting and prayer. And tonight, I do want to encourage you to come at 6 o'clock. It'll be a time, it'll be a one-hour time together where we um, celebrate the Lord, where we give testimony to maybe stuff God has spoken to us over these 21 days, and we'll break the fast, so to speak, uh, by celebrating communion together. Uh, it'll be a wonderful time for our families. So I pray that you will come tonight at 6 o'clock. I, again, I know there are a lot of pressing other things in your life, but just take an hour to come and join us at 6 o'clock for this time of fasting and prayer. Over these past four Sundays, we've been looking at some um, re, R-E, ideas in our Christian faith, um, re meaning, meaning again. And we talked by, we started by talking about how we need to reawaken, to wake up, uh, that uh, we need to wake up to the call for diligence in our lives. Many times we fall asleep and we lose uh, the diligent lifestyle. We need to wake up to the command for action and to the crisis of deception that is uh, all around us. We need to wake up. Paul tells the Ephesian church that it's light that makes everything visible. This is why it said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Paul, in talking to the church in Ephesus, is saying, hey, people, it's time to, you got to wake up. The days are evil. Today, the days are evil, people. Uh, in case you didn't know, um, we need to wake up. But here's the good news. Light casts out darkness. And Jesus Christ is the light of the world. We, we are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who are hopeless. We have a substantial hope in Christ. So we keep pressing forward. We need to wake up to who we are and what God has given us. And we also looked at how we need to, once you wake up, you need to refocus. You know, first thing in the morning, it takes your eyes a little bit of time to kind of get focused on things. As I get older, it takes more time to get focused. But to refocus, we need to look at what we need to look at and stop looking at what we need to stop looking at. We need to focus on the things that God has given us, and we need to regroup. Last week, we talked about how we are in this together. This is not an individualized faith. I had a conversation with someone this week where I was challenging them to say, this is not just about you and God. This is about us and God. This is about the people of God. Nowhere in the New Testament do I see where God sets out lone rangers in any form to just do things on their own. Everyone in the New Testament, we're accountable to each other. We're the body of Christ. We love one another. God is not calling a person after his name. He's calling a people after his name. We need to regroup and come together. And then this morning, I want to close out this um, series on... Uh, revive, to come alive again. On July 8th, 1741, a small man with thick glasses got up to preach a sermon 
in a church and really a field in Enfield, Massachusetts. Preach is probably not even the best description of this sermon because he read his manuscript and his eyes were not very good, never had been. He, he had difficulty seeing. So he, he basically had the manuscript close to himself and read the sermon in an outdoor setting without any kind of amplification. The impact of the message was totally opposite to the passive way that he delivered it without any gestures and loud tones. At one point in the sermon, he had to ask the people listening for silence because they were literally groaning and wailing and crying out before God. The sermon was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was delivered by Jonathan Edwards during what is called the first great awakening in America. Edwards, along with George Whitfield and Gilbert Tennant, were used of God to quicken the spirits of the people. And under their preaching, many church members, many preachers themselves, many people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Historians estimate that over 50,000 people in New England during the years 1740 and 1743 were converted and came into faith. By the way, that's one out of every six people who were living in New England at the time. Estimates are that 100,000 to 150,000 were converted throughout the colonies. In addition, there was a similar revival that was occurring in England at the time under John and Charles Wesley and others. The revival known as the First Great Awakening, resulted in the establishment of Princeton and Dartmouth as schools to send out missionaries and to actually study theology. The revival also laid the foundation of cooperative relationships among many denominations that were segmented and divided in our nation at the time. Well, we weren't even a nation, we were simply colonies. But the First Great Awakening actually led to much of what was determined in both the Declaration of Independence, the mindset, and the establishment of our country. It cannot be underestimated how the First Great Awakening, beginning with that sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and if you want to read a sermon that will cut you to the heart, you should go read this sermon as he describes us all as a, a spider over a flame held by a single thread of the fiber of spiders. And people were convicted and moved. He said this, Jonathan Edwards, God hath it much on his heart from all eternity to glorify his dear and only begotten son. And there are some special seasons that he appoints to that end wherein he comes forth with omnipotent power to fulfill his promise and oath to him. And these times are times of remarkable pouring out of his spirit to advance his kingdom. And he closes with this phrase, such a day is a day of his power. Now, in case you wondered, that's a quote from Psalm 110, verse 3, where the psalmist says this, thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power. 
The idea of revival, of being a, a day of the power of God, being unleashed in the midst of God's people and in a nation is very significant. In 1998, our, our church is 25 years old this year, and, but back in 1998, I got a hold of a book called In the Day of Thy Power. It's a book by Arthur Wallace, and it's, uh, it's really a treatise on revival where he goes through the scripture looking at revivals that occurred in the scripture. Arthur Wallace was a British evangelist, and uh, when I got a hold of this book, I'd been to a conference Someone gave me this book, I read it, and I, it, it really greatly impacted my life at the moment. It is a wonderful book if you've never read it, and as a result, I was led to preach a series of sermons from this book in the end of 1998, beginning of 1999, uh, right before we moved into this facility on revival. I had while I was in seminary, taking a doctoral seminar with Dr. Roy Fish, who was really a legendary professor at seminary. Everybody wanted to take a class with Dr. Fish on evangelism. Uh, he was the evangelism professor, and I was taking a doctoral seminar. I was the only music student in the class. It was called The History of Spiritual Awakenings. It was a two-semester class. And doctoral seminars at seminary are, they're called paper presentation classes. So the the professor doesn't actually teach the class. He kind of moderates a discussion. So you're assigned a topic or a book that you're to write on, and then you write a paper and you present it to the class. Uh, and so I had all these note I two really thick notebooks of papers that were written by fellow students of mine on various great awakenings in the United States. First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, there was a prayer movement awakening, there was uh, the Jesus movement, there was a, a Sousa Street revival. There are a number of great awakenings that we could talk about, and there were a number of book reports. So I got my notebooks out, and as I was preparing for this sermon series, I started reading through these papers. When I came across a book report on this book, In the Day of Thy Power, here's the title page of the book report. Yeah, I wrote the book report, and I, I, I swear, 14 years later, I had no clue that I had ever read this book. Now, <clears throat> it begs the question, did I read the book and write a 15-page paper on it, or did I just make up a 15-page paper on the book report? I'm not really sure what the answer to that question is, but here's the part that I want you to see. I read the exact same book 14 years before 1998, and it had no impact on my life. It did nothing for me. I studied it from an academic standpoint. I believe I read a good part of the book, and I did this 15-page book report, which when I read the book report, it was, it was dang good. I mean, it was a good book report after I had read the book again. There's nothing wrong with my book report. The difference is the difference between life and death. And there are times in our lives where we need God to move in a way that seizes our hearts. And to me, that is the difference between a religious exercise and the power and presence of God indwelling us and in filling us. One is life, the presence of God. One is death. It's just 
activity, human endeavor. Psalm 85, 6 says, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? People, could we not possibly agree that we stand at the precipice in our country of a great need that God would indeed revive us again? That for all the language that's being thrown around on all sides, for all the marches that are taking place, for all the things that are taking going on in our nation, our ultimate cry is this, God, revive us again. Let your spirit, let your life flow into us and out of us to touch the nations and the people around us. Arthur Wallace, in this book that I did such a good book report on, so this, revival is essentially a manifestation of God. It has the stamp of deity upon it, which even the unregenerate, that means those who aren't saved, and the uninitiated, those who don't know anything about God, are quick to recognize. Every one of these revivals that uh, I talk about, the spiritual awakenings that occurred in our country, they, they did not just stir the church which they all did, but they all resulted in numbers, scores of people recognizing there is a God and coming to faith in Jesus. Listen, we are not going to convince people that Jesus is alive merely by telling them how bad they are. We're not going to, um, we're not going to get people to recognize who Jesus is by having more church by doing more religious activities. Our only hope, people, is that God would revive his people again, that God would step into our midst, that God would fill our hearts and our lives. How is that going to happen? I want to go back to Isaiah 64, which we read this morning, and look at some ideas, just walk through the passage with you just briefly this morning to look at from Isaiah 64 what he's saying. Now, let me say this. Look up here just for one second. Whenever you read a prophetic book like Isaiah, it is multi-tiered. By that I mean there's the word that Isaiah is speaking to the people that he's talking to right now. There's the issue that they're dealing with. And then there are different levels that it carries forth. So Isaiah is talking to the people and telling what they need now. He's also speaking prophetically about the coming of Jesus Christ, and I think you'll see that clearly in this passage. And then I think he's also telling us in the future some things about who we are, and that's the level I'm looking at it. Uh, because, yes, it was fulfilled in Isaiah's day. It, it's fulfilled in the coming of Christ. But there's also a call to us as followers of God through Jesus for even today. So how do we see revival and I know that word is overused. When I was small, revival meetings. How many of you are Baptists? Come from Baptist. We used to have revival every, every year. It was a week-long series of meetings. And it was just that. It was a series of meetings. You always prayed revival would come. But really, when you said revival, it was just a week-long series of meetings. What we're talking about here is that God would move supernaturally, manifestly in our midst. Here's the first point. We've got to desire God's presence. Isaiah 
cries out to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. It is a psalm of lament. And is there any word in the English language that's as powerful for crying out as the word, oh? I mean, when you get, when you cry, oh God, oh, there's this depth of longing within your heart. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It is a praying with desperation. <clears throat> My wife, uh, the wonderful woman you saw up here earlier, <laughs> who, is, who is very sensitive, she is, um, she was, she's known what in our family as um, an assertive driver. Um, <clears throat> she is... She is, if you've, you know, there used to be this saying in our family, uh, ride with Kathy, see Jesus kind of thing, because you are, uh, she, she, is, she is quick. She's quick to go, she's quick to stop. So, um, and, and when, you know, my kids were young, we were always running behind. We were always late to some next event. So therefore, she was always pressed. If you, ever, if you want to have a testimony of my, cat, uh, my Kathy's driving, talk to Mark Rhodes sometime. The first time he came up here, he had to go, I, he, he rode with Kathy to go see me do an event. She was running late, and Mark got there, and he was like, I'm praying tongues and like that, and so long. It, it was, uh, it'll help your spiritual life. Anyway, when, when, <laughs> Kathy, Kathy, when she would drive around, whenever she'd see a policeman, she'd start praying. Oh, Jesus, don't let him pull me over. Don't, I don't, I don't need a ticket. We don't need the money. I, I mean, we need the money. We don't need it. Please, you know, she'd start praying. To the point that when Caleb was like four or five, he would see a policeman. He'd say, hey, Mom, there's a policeman. You better start praying. <laughs> I mean, prayer and policemen went together in our family. I think they probably, they probably still do. But there's this cry of desperate, oh, Jesus, don't let me get pulled over here. Listen, we need that cry and so much more to see the presence of God manifest in our lives. What is it that you desire in your life? People, what is it that you desire? You know, we could have a, we could have a blessing service here where, where you, you know, if you come from a Pentecostal background, you, you say, oh, here's what I desire. I desire health. I desire money. I desire a job. I desire this. I, I, I want to say we will never see revival until what we desire is the presence of God, that it supersedes all other desires in our lives. I mean, I, have a, I just dedicated my grandchild. I desire for that man, that young man, to grow up in faith in God. But the only way that's going to occur is if he knows the presence of God in his family, in the church, in our lives as well. Habakkuk 3 uh, speaks of this in some measure. It says, Lord, I've heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. And then it says, God came. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His way are, are, are eternal. You know, it's one thing to pray, God come. It's another thing for God to come. 
I mean, when he comes, God is... Arthur Wallace, again, I'm going to quote from this book several times today, says this, Revival is divine intervention in the normal course of spiritual things. It is God revealing himself to man in awful holiness and irresistible power. I love that phrase, holiness and power. It is such a manifest working of God that human personalities are overshadowed and human programs abandoned. It is, a, it is man, re, I, I got to read this phrase again because I love this sentence. It is man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. It is the Lord making bare his holy arm and working an extraordinary power on Satan and sinner. Why do we not have revival? Could it be? Could it be that what we desire is not really God's presence, but God's blessings? When God is desiring for his people to say, God, I long for you more and more, and then us just stepping back, letting God take the field and intervening, doing what he does. It's, it's us looking to the past like Isaiah does in verse 3 of Isaiah 64, saying, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. It is saying, God, please, do it again. You've done it before, do it again. And our, our nation is, is a nation with historically great awakenings, revivals that have occurred. The first Great Awakening, 1740 through 1743. The second Great Awakening, around 1800. The Prayer Movement Revival of 1858. By the way, I love the Prayer Movement Revival of 1850s. Right, It is one of the things that actually led into the Civil War. It, is, it occurred in the Northeast. Uh, it was a group of men in New York City who were not ministers who started simply getting together and praying. Businessmen who in the middle of New York said, hey, let's just have a prayer meeting. Our nation, we're a mess. People listen to me again. Businessmen got together and prayed in New York City because they recognized that the nation was a mess. Started with two people, went up to like 10, then went back down to like three. By the way, that's the way most prayer meetings, that's the way they grow. They go like two to 10 and back down to three. And then God showed up. Three went to 10, that went to 50, that went to 100, went to thousands of men praying all over our nation for God to move uh, for his rights. It, 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 it made, really, it prepped us for uh, the war that was coming to say what has taken place in our country is not right. Prayer changes things. The Azusa Street Revival of 1900, the Jesus Movement of the 1970s that some of us were around, God's presence showing up. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another British uh, author and pastor, said, have mercy upon us, say those who pray for revival, and upon the state of the church. Behold what we are and remember what we once were. Think of thine own heritage, thine own church, Make her again glorious. Desire God's presence. 
Second is this, do whatever it takes to be prepared. Do whatever it takes to be prepared. Going back to Isaiah 64, it says, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who what? Wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. I've said this before, and I borrowed it from a friend of mine named Reggie McNeil. He is the one I first heard this saying from. But most of life is like this. We predict what the future holds, and then we plan to meet the prediction. That's how most of us operate. Plan, uh, predict, and then plan. Now, what is the problem with predict and plan living? It's, your planning is based on your prediction. The problem is you don't know what tomorrow holds. Everything changed on 9-11. As far as economics, as far as, I mean, if you look around, no one predicted. Every plan that had been written before 9-11 changed on 9-11, so all the plans were no longer valid, right? So the problem with your prediction and planning method is you can't really predict what tomorrow holds. Our call is like this. Our call is to prepare and then participate. Prepare. Get ready for what God is going to do. Desire God's presence, but then prepare so that when he moves, we're ready to move with him. The analogy that Reggie used is like a, a surfer who goes out on the waves. He prepares. He paddles out. He's got his board. What is, does he make the wave? Does he even predict the wave? No, he just gets ready. The wave comes, and when he he participates. We need to prepare for God to move. We need to anticipate that God is going to move because I believe in faith God is going to move again. I believe it. The other alternative is God is going to come again. And that's going to change everything. All predictions are off on that day. Either way, we need to prepare. And then when God moves, participate with what he's doing. How do we prepare? Just a couple of ways. Well, we, we need to confess. We need to recognize. Look, God, our, our country's a mess. We're a mess. Going on in Isaiah 64, he says, But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Do for those of you who are Bible scholars, are you recognizing Scripture passages from the New Testament that are being quoted here? Paul must have loved Isaiah 64. I mean, because he quotes it several times. He talks about, um, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. But then he goes on and says at the end of that in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. No eye has seen, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We get to see what God is doing. We prepare, then we participate when God moves because the Spirit leads us and guides us. Paul also quotes this passage in Romans when he says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, become, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. All our acts are like filthy rags. 
But Christ changes us. We need to confess our sin. We need to, we need to recognize that the isms of this world will never get us to where we need to be. Intellectualism, moralism, humanism. Just go down the list. We need God. And we need to confess our reliance upon Him. Confession is not always about negative stuff. We usually put confession of sin. Confession means agree with God. So when you confess your sins, you're agreeing with God that you have sin. But confession can be glorious too. God is marvel. We're agreeing with who God is and what God can, can do. He goes on, verse 7 and 8, where he says, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Here's another one Paul uses. Another passage from here, that God is the one who is the potter. We need to seek after God. He's the one who made us. We're not the maker. He is. He's the potter. We're the clay. We need to trust him for his work in our lives. <clears throat> Edwards talks about sinners in the hands of an angry God. But if you read a lot of Edwards' work, he also talks about the righteous in the hands of a loving God. He is the potter, we're the clay. Can the clay say to the potter, eh, I don't really need you, potter? No. As Jeremiah says, that's absurd. We need to trust God and his work in our lives. A number of years ago, some young men, there should be a picture there. Nope, it's not there. I had this great picture that goes there. <laughs> I don't know what happened. It was, it was actually of me and Larry Powell and my brother. who We went on a tour of the Waterford Crystal Factory in Ireland 100 years ago. I just was going to show you what young Larry looked like. Uh, as a matter of fact, young Larry looks like old Larry. Uh, actually, he hasn't really changed that much in all of these years. I, on the other hand, have changed greatly. Uh, I was not gray at all back then. Anyway, the point was this. At the Waterford Crystal Factory, they'd say this. Only 30% of the items that begin production actually make it to completion. Every piece that is flawed, that comes up with even the most minor flaw. They don't sell Waterford Crystal in a second-hand store. They, there was no, like, seconds, you know, like the outlet mall. Hey, you know, these stitches are bad. Go get you some clothes where the stitch may go like this. At the Waterford Crystal factory, if, if it's flawed, they bust it. They just shatter it. They melt it down, and they start all over. It was such a picture to me of what God does in our lives how he is in the process of molding us and making us. And there are times when, in the flaws of our life, he allows us to be broken like clay pots in order to form us again like he wants us to. We have to trust him, though, in order for that process to occur in our lives. And to do that, we have to let go of all false security. 
It says in Isaiah 64, 9 through 11, Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. Do you you pick up on this? What what did they trust in as a nation? Oh, we got the temple. Hey, we got the temple. We got the Ark of the Covenant. That's the presence of God. We got the temple. We're we're good. We've got treasures. We've got riches. And we're trusting in the temple and we're trusting in our riches. And Isaiah says God has burned it to the ground. Why? Because God is more concerned about making his name glorious than he is a place. He's more concerned about having a people that are his than a destination. We've got to let go of all false security in order to see revival occur in our nation. And can I, can I just lovingly say this? You are infected, whether you know you're infected or not, with an American materialistic spirit. You can't help it. You, 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 whether you were born here or came here from another country, if you've been here for very long at all, you've been infected. You know, the, the flu is rampant right now. What, did, what are these people doing to catch the flu? Nothing. They're just, the flu is all around. It's jumping on them from everywhere. I, I would say American materialism is even much worse. You cannot get away from it. And whether you know it or not, it becomes a security blanket in your life. I, I have this uh, computer program called Quicken that I, I use to manage my finances, try and keep up with, you know, how fast my money is going out the door. You know, you have five kids, two in college. Man, your money is flowing. So it's going somewhere. So I'm just keeping track. And it also keeps track of my retirement fund and some other stuff. And so I, 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 I've gotten to the place. I'm trying to not look at it. You know what I mean? Do you know how hard it is to not look when it's right there on your computer when you just have to update it and every day I can tell you, Oh, yesterday you lost $10,000. You didn't do nothing. Or you gained $10,000, you didn't do nothing. I mean, it, it, it becomes a security aspect of your life. It becomes something you rely on, thinking about your future. Listen, I, I'm not against planning or finance. I mean, if you come to Fullness Very Long, you know we believe in good stewardship, and that means handling your finances properly. I'm going to talk in February about a heart of giving. Uh, to have a heart of giving, <laughs> you need to have something to give, right? And if you're, you know, if you're in debt up to your eyeballs, you probably don't got a lot to give. And you're up to debt in your eyeballs because you probably didn't plan very well. Or you got the American materialistic spirit that said, hey, sell your future for the pleasure of what you can buy today. Whole another sermon. We'll come back to it. Here's the point. Let go of all false security. It is false security because it's false. It's not going to get you where you need to be. Revival is saying, God, move in our midst. We 
We need you. We need you to come. Last point is this. We need to receive his promise. Receive his promise. Verse 12 says, After all this, O Lord, will you withhold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? The answer that Isaiah is trying to lead into by the questions is not, yes, God will hold himself back, but rather no, he won't. It is the promise of the coming of Jesus. It is the promise of the coming of the Spirit. It is the promise that when we, when we walk in faith and desire his presence, when we prepare our hearts by confession, seeking after God, acknowledging his sovereignty, being secure in only him, God's promise is this. He will inhabit his people. He will come. John 17 says, Righteous Father, this is Jesus' prayer for us. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The promise of Jesus is that he is in us. By the person of the Holy Spirit. When we walk in the presence of God, when we walk in the power of God, when revival comes, when God shows up on the field, people recognize God is surely among you. Unbelievers come to faith in Jesus Christ, not based on words, not based on resources, but based on the presence of God that's standing in front of them, that's demonstrated in power. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, God, that you would rend your heavens and come down. That thy people, O oh Lord, would offer themselves willingly in the day of your power. Stand up with me, if you would, and let's pray. This is my heart's cry for us. That the power of God would be manifest in our midst. Above all else, I don't care about a building. I don't care about chairs. I don't care about PowerPoint. I don't care. What I care about is this, that God's presence would be manifest in our midst. I pray that you'll join me in that prayer. Lord, this morning, we give ourselves to you. We pray that we would offer ourselves willingly in the day of your power. That, God, we would give ourselves to you. And, God, may we join together and pray and say this, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Lord, we have no answer in this nation. We have no answer in this city. We have no answer in this church or even in our families, individual lives, apart from your presence among us. And, God, today I pray that your power would be released among us. Lord, I pray that in this people and this place, you would show us everything that, that keeps you from being manifest. God, I pray that you would move among us today. God, we, we adore you. We love you. Lord, where we are, we've 
we've predicted and planned, Lord, help us move to a place where we prepare and then participate with you when you move. God, we give ourselves to you afresh and anew today. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to dismiss us by speaking a benediction over us. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of teams of prayer, if they would. Ministry teams, if you have need for prayer, just come to the right or left of me. And if you have something you would like prayer for, please come to that. Uh, One of these ministry teams before you leave today. Uh, Again, We'll get her prayer in just a minute. She's, she's coughing, but we'll get her prayer before we leave. Um, but come back tonight and let's celebrate what God has done in our midst. Um, let's have testimonies. If God has spoken something to you, come prepared to share it, to encourage the body. Come and we'll pray for one another. We'll have communion together. It's going to be a great night. I hope you'll uh, be back tonight, 6 o'clock. It'll be a family event. We're all here together. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.